the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Nice. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and early 1990s. Worlds collide on today's episode, boys and girls, maybe literally, as today's guest is a lover of science fiction, but we'll get to that in a second. Sci-fi hasn't really been a focus on the gory days, but I am more than happy to accommodate it. It is something that for a long time has kind of walked hand in hand with sci-fi. You can't go very far in sci-fi, in the world of sci-fi, without running into somebody getting eviscerated by an alien, or getting burst open by some, well, alien. So, I am Kyle Leone, your host, uh, with, dare I say, the most... If you're listening to the podcast for the first time ever, here's what we do. I, Kyle Leone again, am your host, and I talk a little bit about my guest, and I talk about what they're doing, where they're going, where they've been, where to find them, and then we take a little break. When we come back, we talk about our movie today, which I won't spoil for those of you who haven't read the title of today's episode. She's worked in California, Alabama, New York, and on tour. I can't wait to find out what that means. Please welcome screenwriter Kimberly Jade Solomon. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Gory Days. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first time on the podcast, but we met previously at the JHRTS holiday party. Is that correct? No. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. It was amazing. (laughs) So I have to admit, um, I was... uh, a little drunk that night and so I handed out a number of business cards to a number of people um, but I distinctly remember that you were the first one to email me back of all of the people that I threw business cards at so I need to get into a better habit of collecting business cards yeah it was really fun and I've had a problem of not being able to get enough cards because a lot of people don't have them actually oh but yes I'm very good at emailing people if I do get a card what what do they do then I don't know. Do they just exchange phone numbers or emails, I guess? I guess you can. Sometimes I'll just give people my card, and if they want to hear from me, then they'll email me, you know? Do you have one of those, like, fancy embossed cards? I don't mean to go all American Horror... uh, American Horror Story. American Psycho on you, but do you have those embossed cards with, like, gold flakes and stuff? It's not that fancy. Maybe if it was, I'd get more responses, (laughs) because I hand out a lot. Yeah. Man, with all this talk, I wish we were sponsored by Vistaprint. Exactly. I've used them a lot as well (laughs) in the past. So, uh, you're a screenwriter and you said you shared with me your imdb pro account which i'm not fancy enough to have. what is the difference between a regular account and a pro account well i just love the pro account because you get access to a lot of contact information oh okay so, yeah that's the main difference you have a little bit of control over what you want to be featured you know to be say you're known for this or to add a lot of pictures you have a little more control with that but also, you know, as a screenwriter, I'll, you know, query letter producers all the time or managers, and I'll get dozens, if not, well, really hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of emails through from... IMDb Pro. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. I had it's, no idea. It's fantastic. <laughs> Once again, this episode is brought to you by IMDb Pro. Yeah. So if you don't mind, <laughs> I would like to read off some of your uh, credits here of um, 2018's Tinker. 
uh, union compulsion. Oh, special thanks. What was the special thanks for, for compulsion? That is a, a screenwriting friend, okay. and we exchange scripts all the time. So I helped give him basically notes on his script. Okay. So unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to be uh, candid here that not a lot of people probably would have heard of these movies. They're more on the indie circuit, but that's where we're all starting. This is kind of, you don't move to Hollywood and immediately start making the uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nines or the uh, the Wifes like overnight. Right. Wives? I don't know. I didn't see it. The Glenn Close Oscar one? Yeah. I'm so bad. I haven't seen any of the Oscar contenders this year. I don't Not know if one. I have either. So. <laughs> yeah. Roma? Uh, is Roma for an Oscar? I Can Netflix so. movies get an Oscar now? That one? Everyone's been talking about that one. So I think it is up for Wow. Oscar. Okay. That yeah. and If Beale Street Could Talk, I remember, is like the big one. Once again, I haven't seen. I have a lot to see yeah. as well. <laughs> so um, you are a screenwriter. You have these writing credits. And even though uh, they're not the big triple uh, A releases, you're still making it. How does that feel? Where 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 have you come from that this is like something that you can point to and go, oh yeah, I've got nine or ten credits from 2018. I've got some things in the works. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really grateful with where my career is. It's still at the beginning stages. Sure. But I feel different things are happening. Some other things are in the works that aren't even on there that I can tell you about. Oh. So just there's a lot of good stuff in the air. And I just really feel like 2019 is going to be especially good for me. And I think for a lot of people, because a lot of my friends feel that way. Sure. So we're all very positive about that. But um, I have a definitely interesting story of how I got into screenwriting. Oh, okay. Go ahead. So I'd love I, to hear. I'm from Alabama. Mostly, I actually grew up moving a lot when I was really little. So Alabama was technically the fifth state I lived in. Oh, okay. Yeah, but um, but since I lived there the longest, and I you know was older there, I just call it home, Birmingham. Okay. Birmingham's a great city. There's lots of culture there. There's lots of theater, arts, you know, ballet, and there's just so much there. So when I was in high school, I did the typical. I was in musicals. I was in show choir. But then I started stage managing and doing tech. In high school? Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm very aggressive with my <laughs> job hunting. I mean, I think you have to be out here. That's what's great about LA. Everyone's sure. like that. So back then, I was the only one really like that in Birmingham. So I would get jobs with the symphony, just paid work. I would you know, work for the ballet as a production assistant, Alabama Ballet. I would just do lots of paid work when I was 17, 18. And um, I just kept doing that. And long story, but I produced a musical that I wrote when I was 18. So because I used to write musicals, that was my passion all through high school. And it wasn't really my genre, uh, to be honest. It wasn't my, I guess, format. But you finished and wrote the entire musical to decide that's not for me. Well, I produced it, so it was it was a blast. That's insane. It's just looking back, it was okay. You know, for eighteen, um, it wasn't like this is incredible. What, what, what was it? What was it? What was it about? What's the logline? Oh goodness, the logline. Um, okay, well, actually, actually, to be honest, um, it's called Let's Put on a Show. Okay. And because one of my musicals wasn't quite good enough. It was actually more like the best songs from four. <laughs> okay, cool. So one Frankenstein. Of, one of them's called like the Heart of Canterbury's. They're all, I love his historical pieces. One of them's called New York Dream. They're very. It's a little cheesy, and it was very presentational. Well, but, what musical isn't? Uh, yeah, that's true, but maybe a little more so. But I'm very proud of it. No, I really sure. am. I mean, I got it together. I had almost zero sleep. I was a freshman in college. So I would basically be recording in my makeshift studio up until like 5 or 6 a.m. And then I would walk through my 8, eight o'clock class. Um, so in any case, I was a theater major. Wait, I'm sorry. So you wrote the music and lyrics for this all by yourself? Yes. And I produced it. I organized it because I had already done 
honestly about 15 musicals as a performer because like i said when i in I, four years of high school or oh, yeah. your whole life no mm, just high school yeah just in high school because i would do like three or four a year and i would do sometimes two at the same time so i would do one with high school to like five and then i would go to my evening rehearsal oh, for my second musical i had friends who were doing that that's amazing it's, it's fun yeah it's exhausting it i looks love like. to sing. i can't dance but okay. i love to sing okay so you're still humble that's good <laughs> I, I really can't dance <laughs> Like, trust me on that. <laughs> but I, I'm a decent singer. I will okay. say that. But in any case, um, I'm very aggressive. So I got an internship in Carmel, California when I was 18 Fantastic. as well. I had finished the musical. So left school temporarily um, and did that for six months. A lot of experience with theater there. Then when I was 20, I got an internship on Wicked on Broadway. And so I dropped out of college again. And my parents were not happy about that. So they cut me off. But it was wicked. Well, I guess when it first showed up, people... I mean, now you can go, but it's wicked. But was it like when it was just starting its uh, circuit on Broadway? It was a few... It was like about a year later, actually. So people definitely knew about it. But it wasn't about that at all. You know, my dad's a professor. Now, oh. now he's a dean. Um, so he's a, all about education. Okay. So I left school uh, to go do that, basically. Do they um, have any kind of key into entertainment in the industry or... Like, does your mom, I don't know. Oh, no. no? Like, none yeah, of my relatives, <laughs> none of my cousins. Yeah, I'm the only one, yeah. so, which is okay. And I'm the oldest cousin, the oldest sibling. So oh, okay. there was just a lot about that. Yeah. Where you're setting an example, kind of, and they don't want to say like, oh, well, you know, the oldest went and did this, but <laughs> it's a risk. And I can understand, like, I'm sure you can understand where your parents are coming from. They just want you to do what they did. They want you to get a job the way they did in a world that doesn't really support that anymore. So good for you. Good for you. How did that go? Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, (laughs) it went great. Um, I just knew it was right, you know, and basically, you know, I mailed, it was like I emailed and mailed resumes to every Broadway company. And that was the one who called me. And essentially their internet just moved up. So they were like, oh, are you in New York? And I was like, oh, I'm moving there in two weeks. So it all kind of happened really quickly. Yeah. And um, I will say this. My dad did fly me there to make sure I was safe and then, you know, left. So I, he was not happy, but he was at least at least sort of emotionally supportive. But they basically told me, don't ask us for a penny like you're on your own. So I worked about 100 hours a week um, over about four years. So it went great. So that was when Spelling Bee was coming to Broadway. Oh. So that, yeah. So that was yes. really fun. So I was interning there as well. So it was basically with the producers because the same producers did both. So I would run errands to the theater, help out the stage managers, run errands around town, and then just help out in the office a lot with the company managers. Um, and then so basically for two years, I did lots of different Broadway shows as an intern. I actually joined Equity as well as a stage manager when I was 20. So, so I, you, you were, sorry to interrupt. So you were yeah. interning in New York for two years. Where were you living? In I, the city? Yeah, I lived in Manhattan. I've had, I've lived all over. I lived, my best apartment, I have to say, and this was probably my third year in New York, was 42nd Street between 8th and 9th. Okay. So it's I'm like not familiar one block away from where the ball drops, basically. Oh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You can it, avoid all of that craziness on New Year's and still get to enjoy it. Oh, I just, I just stayed in my apartment yeah, for exactly. sure. But well, yeah, Well, so do I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm not standing there for 12 hours. But... Yeah. And it's only getting colder. People are going to freeze this year. Oh, my goodness. And it was raining, I guess, this oh, last God. God, I, I forgot felt, about that. I felt so bad for them. Yeah. But I lived all over Manhattan. So mm-hmm. I lived in Washington Heights, you know, Harlem, East Harlem. I found really cheap places. I, I mean, Those I got... are all places I recognize from the Netflix Marvel shows. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, they're, they're awesome. <laughs> no, I was always, I liked them. I mean, I was always 
safe, you know, at least. Okay. So, um, I, but I was so well, young. Because Daredevil and Luke Cage were protecting you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I got to represent. That's so funny. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Now I need to watch those more because I'll be like, oh, do, well, I, do I recognize? <laughs> clock's ticking because they're getting taken off of Netflix and they're going to be put oh. on Disney Plus uh, in the spring. So We're losing so much. I know. But I guess I have to get the Disney one now. I don't know. There's so many subscriptions. Yeah, oh, there my are. Goodness. So but, you were yeah. producing in uh, or you were interning in New York for two years. You said you were there for how long were you in new york before you moved yeah almost four years okay about three and a half but then i went back for another six months so okay call it four but uh yeah and so i would stage manage on nights and weekends though with uh with like equity contracts or sometimes smaller things just whatever i could do so i was just always constantly doing something love theater it was definitely getting new york was tiring um so i was definitely getting um tired of the hustle and bustle a little bit i loved it I and I'm, I'm glad i did it when i was really young when you had the <laughs> energy the stamina exactly honestly the emotional stamina yeah so from there i went to florida for a little bit and okay. i stage managed at theme parks well, so oh was, uh, so orlando yeah cool orlando yep yeah so i did oh, and that, is that where your disney credit shows up um that's actually completely unrelated oh, okay. but i'm a huge disney fan so am i so i was re- that was my favorite event to work in hollywood was the disney one so, okay very very fun um well hopefully we'll circle back to that but yeah go ahead yeah yeah oh i'm sorry That's okay. <laughs> but um yeah so i yeah worked at like bush gardens i worked at sea world and uh, walt disney world yeah so it was fantastic and then i then i went back to school to finish my degree okay and that's when i started taking screenwriting okay and as soon as i started taking that i just knew it was just fit me better so I, I just knew that i could yeah definitely yeah. so i took um at least four writing classes in college I was reading tons of books. I still, that's all I read are screenwriting books. Okay. Um, but I enjoy them so much. Yeah, you know? no. So. Seems like if you want to be an expert in your field, you want to absorb as much as you can. Yeah. And it also sounds like you got a really early start compared, well, I was going to say compared to some people, but now in this YouTube generation and world, the kids are getting their start like at five and, you know, they're producing whole things. But that's true. Do you feel like being outside of the gener- the YouTube generation, uh, that you like had a real head start on some of your peers on what, not just having a focus on what you wanted to do at such an early age. At 18, you knew, did you know what you wanted to do at 18? Is that why you were so laser focused? Yeah, I really wanted to stage manage is one thing. And I knew I could be successful at that. That's great. But I also wanted to write and I was a little, but in some ways I was a little too scared to focus on the screen, um, excuse me, the like musical writing. Oh. But I kind of knew in the back of my head that I was like, this isn't quite good enough. I was definitely like aware of that. So, but once I found screenwriting and even from the first short I wrote, just to be honest, I was like, okay, I mean, it's not like it was great, but it was like, I can do this though. And so then I wasn't scared. I was like, I'm going after it, you know? Um, but in my early twenties, I knew I could be successful at, at stage management and I love Broadway. I love musicals. Yeah. So yeah. Enough to convince your parents to leave home and do it for a living. <laughs> I didn't really convince them. Oh, okay. I basically was like, I'm going. I was going to say, cause I don't think I could convince my parents. Like, uh, I wasn't scared to do it. That's, though. that's amazing. Well, that's the young ignorance, I guess. <laughs> and I looked so young. I don't know how I Ign- survived. <laughs> ignorance is bliss yes. is, is the saying, but honestly, yeah, I look back on some of the things that I did when I was just a dumb kid in high school in my bedroom on my first uh, MacBook Pro and how unafraid I was to try things and not like judging myself and going like, oh, well, this isn't as good as blanks. This isn't as good as uh, Bo Burnham was the thing that I started to get in my head after a while making my stupid little uh, secret songwriter videos. Like, uh, yeah, so there's something to be said about 
never losing that or or at least finding a way to reconnect with that in some way your childhood self because because that's the self that's not afraid to create and that's all we have and that's the thing that i like want to take away from our listeners from or take away for our listeners from your story is that you didn't wait for things to fall into your lap or for uh, somebody to call you or you didn't just like bum around looking for uh, an, an opportunity to fall into your lap. You went out and you got it. And even when people, authority figures in your life were telling you, uh, I don't know that this is a, such a great idea, you did it anyway. And that's bravery. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Good for you. Oh, thank you, Kyle. Um, Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So pivoting a little bit to sci-fi and your fascination with it, what's your relationship to the genre and why do you find such a, a tie to science fiction? Well, I always loved Star Wars growing up. Oh. I mean, and I always, you know, just watched all the the movies. I had all the little characters as a kid. Like the action figures and stuff? Like the action figures. And they used to make even smaller ones. Like, I would have little play sets of the worlds with the itty-bitty, okay. like Leia. Oh, I loved all that stuff. I had, I wish, I don't have them anymore, and I wish I had kept them, but um, I always had fun with that. I just, my dad, I mean, my dad's a scientist. Oh. <laughs> he's a physicist. Oh, okay. So, That's what he's know, a professor of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the so, dean now, I guess. I know, he's a dean now. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Shout out. Yeah, exactly. Good job, dad. <laughs> um, and he used to work at NASA. Um, cool. Yeah. Which In is, its heyday. Yeah, exactly. And which is even funnier because my husband works at JPL. Oh, so small he world. basically works at part of NASA. Small galaxy. So exactly. <laughs> so my my dad loves sci-fi. So that definitely got my start because I started watching. Um, I mean, I was pretty. I don't remember the age, but I was pretty young when I just started watching the um, all the Star Wars things. And I've always loved to go to the theater to watch all the new incarnations. Oh, as well. that's what I was going to ask. So uh, you watched Star Wars, the original trilogy. You were definitely around for the prequel trilogy. And obviously you're here now for the sequel trilogy. Right. What are your thoughts on the franchise and how it's evolved? Well, I will admit after Rogue One, I haven't gone as much. I'm happy to like rent it. So I just miss the old days, I yeah. think. Because even back in the day... In like the second, you know, trilogy, I guess, or I don't know, prequel. Yeah, yeah. But um, I even liked that one probably more so than some of the newest ones. I did too. But once again, I think it's like the nostalgia rose-colored glasses of being a child and not, or you know, younger and not judging and not you know, uh, thinking things are terrible or worse because we really didn't have a base for that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you that episode one, uh, that like the entire movie is amazing. Uh, you can ignore you know the midi chlorians and stuff, but like the podcast or podcast the pod. <laughs> race scene is amazing Freudian slip the double-bladed yeah. lightsaber uh Queen Amidala and Padme like and all of her agency and stuff it was super cool um but Absolutely. you can point there's a million ways that you could argue that no it's not a good movie <laughs> I know I think you're right I think it was better back then um and you know now I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much the classics I could still watch forever, yeah they still hold course. up they really do. They really do. And I, I do like going to the movies to see them because it's familiar. Sure. So sometimes you just go with it. And I really liked Rogue One. It's really funny. I didn't realize it was a completely separate thing. So I didn't know they were like all going to die, though. Oh, man. I, it, this is, it's that just, must have made it so much better. It was sad, though. Yeah, 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 but yeah. no, I mean, it's just my... I just was <laughs> ignorant. But I was excited. I was like, oh, this is don't, so cool. Don't be embarrassed New about characters. that. I'm just being... <laughs> No, I know somebody that went to see, I, I, I know they don't listen to the podcast, so I don't care saying this, I'm not going to say their name, but they went to see Mary Poppins Returns, and they didn't know that it was a sequel. They thought it was a remake from the original, and they came out of the theater, and they were like, they didn't do Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, they didn't do Feed the Birds, and I was like, 
Bitch, it's called Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> it's a second one. It's, yeah. a, it's a sequel. It's a continuing. And like, even the plot is like, I've come back to help the Banks children. Like, was she just like, hi? Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Hi. <laughs> and that was good. That was the composer who does a lot of Broadway. Yeah. Mark yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting because, you know, Alan Menken used to be this, the god of uh, Disney musicals and everything. And now uh, he comes up. When when they want to make it a big deal that Alan Menken is back, but now there's a lot like Mark, uh, uh, the one you just said, Mark Shaman, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so many uh, great musicals. See, um, I still admire them very much. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. they do a good job. <laughs> so I wouldn't necessarily call Star Wars grounded sci-fi, but that was your oh, key right. into uh, the the world. So right. how did you kind of get more toward, uh, I guess, more realistic? I don't know. We'll just say grounded. Yeah. Well, I do enjoy writing character drama. That's okay. probably one of my favorite genres to write. And then the movie that I did, Tinker, I got hired to be a co-writer on. Okay. That one was grounded sci-fi. So it, in some ways, being a part of that experience kind of helped reignite everything. Uh-oh. <laughs> Left your cell phone on. That's okay. <laughs> Not a problem. But um, yeah, I know it was me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so being a part of that experience was really interesting because it had a lot to do with like the power of crystals and had a lot of Native American type of themes. Yeah, tell and... us about Tinker. Is there a place that we can find it that our listeners, if they're interested, can uh, watch it? That's a great question. So last year, I know it was making the festival circuit. Okay. Last I heard, it was going on DVD. Okay. Um, but that's all I heard about it. So, so maybe Redbox. I don't know if it'll be, I don't think it's big enough for Redbox. Okay. I think it, like you were saying, it is quite indie, but it does have two stars in it. So it's Clayne Crawford. Okay. Um, he was in Lethal Weapon. Okay. Um, he was the lead in that, um, the TV show right, for right, two right. seasons. And um, Christian Kane, who's cool. from Leverage and The Librarians. I'm so sorry. He's I have fantastic. to come clean on the podcast. Whenever I don't recognize somebody, I make sure to go, oh yeah, I do. Oh, expected yeah. you to tell me who it is so yeah, i don't yeah. know who they are but that sounds great no no problem I, <laughs> i'm sorry i mean they're great actors um they are they're on not everyone weapon, and, yeah. yeah exactly yeah clean did a great job and christian kane has a huge following um from his what was it not buffy but angel i think oh yeah, really for, mm-hmm. that i do so know he, <laughs> okay yeah yeah the joss whedon world yes yeah so he he's a heart, so you, heartthrob okay yeah. so you mentioned uh it's got to do with crystals and stuff what brings tinker into the grounded world yeah so it's about a father and a son relationship okay the father's an inventor so he basically ignores his son you know spends a lot of time in his workshop but he's always inventing these amazing things okay and he has this incredible machine that he's been building Meanwhile, the town is dealing with, you know, major crisis with the farming community. It's set outside of Birmingham. In like um, present in a, day? In a cute small town. Yes. Okay. It is present day. But essentially the town is, you know, dying and really struggling with being able to produce all the crops. Right. And they're looking for, you know, solutions. And, you know, we're having drought. You know, it's definitely getting better, but uh, we're dealing with drought that all was, over, really. No, that's the first thing I thought is that's kind of relatable. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so essentially he creates this machine. It's really large. And then he's been searching for the thing that helps to make. For the listeners who can't see right now, Kimberly is miming a very large thing, and I can't quite tell. It looks like it's got maybe handles on the side. No, maybe udders (laughs) on the bottom. I'm not quite sure. I'm sorry. You'll have to be more specific. Yeah, it's basically you can see through it. It almost has lots of different bars on each side. It's really tall, and once it comes to life, you know, it's full of energy. So it sounds like a production designer's uh, production designer's dream come true. Yes. 
Will Drummond, um, he did an amazing job with it, built it from scratch. And it's indie, so of course everything's relatively low budget. But essentially, it, the son is the one who ends up finding a crystal um, with Christian Kane's character, who's really in touch with like the Native American community. Oh. So he ends up doing a Native American ritual to help save the town. And then his son, and I think the um, Native um, Christian Kane's character helps him, they find the crystal that ends up being able to save the town because the crystal goes inside the center of the machine. And because of all the prayers that he did as a Native American um, person, like that's all comes together. And, you know, the environment comes together and they get rain and everything just works out in terms of the quality but meanwhile you know this the the main guy who's been working so hard the inventor you know and that's clan crawford's character he's been basically ignoring his son building this yeah. trying to save the town but it also ends up bringing them closer especially when the son ends up having the answer yeah um and it just helps create water and it's just really it's really neat like dealing with all of that no i, I i'm already like picking up on some of the themes there it's just the first thing that i thought of is i never considered that science fiction doesn't necessarily have to be aliens or or you know like uh time travel or something it can be spiritual and that's still science fiction the science is that there's a drought and we need to implement you know science to fix the drought but the impetus is the the like rain dance or the spiritual uh uh, part of it that's fascinating are you religious do you have a spiritual connection to the uh, native american people not the native american people um for the longest time i thought my dad was a descendant because my grandma used to be obsessed with it her whole house was native american but it's not she just liked it okay (laughs) but um i am religious though cool so i am spiritual Um, and do you find that that uh is a good place of write what you know for your uh screenwriting yes definitely so and and right now i write a lot of faith-based scripts i'm just kind of shifting a little bit into that cool and i enjoy that a lot just because it has just really positive themes absolutely and that sort of thing but i did like that aspect you know of the script of the tinker and um even though the machine isn't real you know in term maybe real like you were saying that's one of the science fiction parts about it i did really like how that all came together yet you still had all the character drama and it's in this setting of the small towns so you yeah. have all the town characters and it was just really fun i'm really honored to be a part of it i was on set with them and it was really fun and so like the difference between say star wars and this is that it's not galaxy spanning and it's not about the fate of the entire universe it is a small town and on earth uh, with humans, and yeah, it's very simple, but at the same time, from a simple start like that, that's where you're able to bring in such overarching things like the allegory between saving the town and saving his relationship. Like, that's really cool. Sorry, I don't mean to blow up your spot. No, that's, that was... That's for the scholars 50 years from now. That, that was that was really smart. <laughs> I was like, oh, you never thought of that. That's what, oh, oh, okay. No, that's, that's well, cool. That's, that's what I like to do on this show. No, definitely. Um, yeah, so I, yeah. G- grounded I, sci-fi, I can't think... I mean... I think the last episode that we did was A Quiet Place. So that's pretty grounded sci-fi in itself where, you know, yeah, it's a very small town. Have you seen A Quiet Place? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. Uh, A Quiet Place 2 got announced uh, pretty recently on uh, social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, So that's a fun one. But without further ado, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have more Kimberly Jade Solomon. We're going to have more The Gory Days. And we're going to be talking about our our film Arrival from 2016 when we come back. The Gory Days. 
Welcome back to the Gory Days. I'm here with screenwriter Kimberly Jade Solomon, and we are talking about the 2016 grounded sci-fi Arrival, starring uh, what was her name? Amy Adams, um, the great uh, Lois Lane from the uh, Man of Steel and Justice League movies. It was kind of funny. Lois Lane is in this movie, and so is Hawkeye uh, in Jeremy Renner from uh, uh, the Avengers movies. Um, so if you haven't seen Arrival, it's an amazing movie. It came out in 2016, directed by Denis Villeneuve, the director who uh, made Sicario and most recently Blade Runner 2049. Um, and what I'm most excited to hear about is he's directing the new Dune movie in 2020. Have you read Dune? Are you familiar with Dune? No, I haven't. Me neither, but um, I'm starting to because I heard the movie's coming out and my fiance super loves all of the Dune books and he's read all of them, so he's been begging me to, to read them uh, for the last couple of years. And now that a movie's being made with Oscar Isaac, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll pick these up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I swear, everything awesome. I hear about that movie makes me more and more excited. Aw. Uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve by, uh, and written by screen pl- uh, screenwriter Eric Heisserer, who mo- uh, who is famous for apparently writing The Thing remake, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010, Final Destination 5, Lights Out, and most recently, Bird Box on Netflix. So, right from the beginning here, you can't get very far into a sci-fi movie without finding a tie to horror already. The screenwriter here has written one, two, three... And a half horror movies. I and don't know. can I just say I love the Final Destination movies? Oh my god, me too! Every single Kimberly. one of them. <laughs> and it's hard for me to use a garbage disposal. I, I can never <laughs> use a fire escape. I don't know if I'll ever be able to use a fire escape. It's probably one of my favorite horror. Or, movies. or I, I can't drive behind logs. I can't. Um, exactly. There's so many things. I, I I don't go on amusement park roller coasters. I don't go to NASCAR. Exactly. Uh, I don't limited. work out under swords. <laughs> It's limited us so much now, but yeah, I love every single one. I think I saw the last one for sure in the theater. But is um, that the, the the bridge collapsing one? I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, was, yeah. Oh, that um, was. I the, love it. All. I think I think Final Destination three is the one where um, uh, it's like one dude gets nail gunned in the face and another woman gets her head decapitated from the elevator. And oh. I still think of all of that. And and the kid gets crushed by the falling glass. Um, yeah, that it's movie. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you got me all. Off. Yeah, you got me on a Final Destination thing because the first movie is so good and then like they start to just destroy it with the subsequent ones where it's like oh i can react to my visions and they come as it like it's convenient to the plot and then i react to them as they come so annoying but Uh, it is one of those things where i put up with all that because i just love them so much yeah because i just want to see the like uh rube (laughs) goldberg machine that kills somebody I love it. I love it. Um, oh, I wish they were still making those. Give it time. They'll, they'll yeah, reboot them. I hope yeah, so. They reboot everything else these days. Um, so, directed by Denis Villeneuve, screenplay by Eric Heisler, and music by Johan Johannesson, who also did the music for Sicario, the um, uh, like mockumentary with Joaquin Phoenix, I Am Here, and Mandy, most recently. What is Mandy? Mandy. I've been seeing stuff for Mandy. It's got Nicolas Cage and it's got like vaporwave style posters, but I don't know what it's about. Oh, I have no idea. Okay, cool. There's people screaming at their iPods right now going, it's about this. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it's better than some of the other movies for Nicolas Cage. (laughs) I don't know if it's better than this though. Starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, and to a lesser extent, Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh, Arrival follows a linguist enlisted by the U.S. Army to discover how to communicate with aliens 
who have arrived on Earth before tensions lead to war. So the world premiere of this movie first came out at the Venice Film Festival on Thursday, September 1st, 2016, and after getting rights acquired by Paramount Pictures, was released in the U.S. and Canada by Paramount on Friday, November 11th. I don't remember what I was doing that week, but I definitely didn't see this movie opening weekend. I was one of those people that saw this, like, probably the last week it was available in theaters. I don't know what it was, if it was the trailers or... Um, I don't know. There was. Do you remember the poster for this movie? I don't actually. It was, uh, you know, the eight and a half by eleven or whatever the dimensions are for a poster of uh, the like egg ship floating over um, what was supposed to be like a Hong Kong skyline. But what I thought was interesting here is that um, it included Shanghai's Oriental Pearl Tower, which is in Shanghai and not in Hong Kong. Which, over here, no one really cares about in the States, but apparently the inaccuracy angered Hong Kong social media users to such an extent that the marketing... Uh, it's actually kind of funny. That Paramount issued a statement attributing the inaccuracy inaccuracy to a third-party vendor. So they released the thing saying, we're so sorry, it was someone else's fault. We oh, foisted like, it off. They passed the buck. That's crazy. But yeah, like something this big, an oversight like that, it's like, oh, that tower looks kind of cool. Just put that in there and no one will really care, but... Uh, I'm trying to think, like, that'd be like if the Space Needle showed up in the New York skyline. Would that piss you off? Yeah, definitely. It would. Oh, okay. I mean, definitely, because <laughs> I lived there, so if there's something that's not real, like New York, and or, it's set in New York, I especially guess it, that. I, but... I guess it would be more if, like, the New York, the Empire State Building showed up in Seattle. Then mm. it would be like, well, that's that's ours. Why is... Yeah. It would just be really weird. It would be weird, be yeah. like, that is so wrong, but that's hilarious that other people didn't realize that for china yeah you know that no one in the department for whatever this third party vendor was thought that this would be a problem because yeah. here it'd be like so blatant yeah if it was <laughs> like if you put the the st louis arch uh anywhere else anywhere else literally <laughs> yeah. anywhere else i don't know if it'd get me angry on social media it takes a lot to get me angry but it would be annoying <laughs> yeah i don't think god yeah that's the thing like it it said that people you know were so angered about it on social media <gasps> And I thought to myself, like, God, what? I, I don't really tweet people. I don't tweet companies and tell them, like, you you need to make this right. But hundreds of thousands of people do, as evidenced by how, like, uh, I had a, I, I knew somebody who is an influencer um, who was on the podcast uh, in an earlier, like, in season one that we've done, season one. Um, and uh, he, I forgot why I started talking about this. I'm going to cut this part out. It received eight nominations at the 89th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, but it won for Best Sound Editing, which I don't know what the contenders were, but the sound editing in this movie is so great. Yeah. There's one particular moment I want to remember to bring up where they first like see the entrance to the hole and the sound just like cuts out and there's just this like vacuum. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, it also received Golden Globe nominations for Best Actress, uh, Best Original Score, and was awarded the Ray Bradbury Award for Best for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation in 2017. So, lots of people agree that this movie is pretty great. Uh, the other thing I forgot to mention is at the end, we'll rate the movie on a scale of one to five thumbs uh, based mm. on whatever you want. And uh, I have a feeling I know what I'm going to rate this movie, but no spoilers. <laughs> um... The film uses a language script. This movie, for people who haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, pause the podcast right now and go watch it. This is an amazing movie. But the aliens in it, they use this language that is this circular, like, 
I don't know what else to call it, characters. But I thought it was interesting that those designs, all of the like hundreds of things that we see, were all designed by Montreal-based artist Martine Belcland, wife of the production designer for this movie, Patrice Vernet. Um, and all uh, the drawings that her daughter does, Hannah, the drawings were all done by his son, uh, Martine Belcland's son. Cool. Which I guess is interesting to somebody out there, I hope. That's awesome. <laughs> um, let's see. It was a beautiful design for the characters. Oh, yeah. For the ships, for the... Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, just like the aesthetic that they have. They called it dirty sci-fi is what the, the director and screenwriter uh, and cinematographer Bradford Young called the look uh, for the movie, which is like this kind of like grayed out almost feels like uh, constantly overcast. Even in like Amy Adams acting in her role feels like very, uh, not ethereal, but like, like misty, smoky, like, like she doesn't seem totally sure. And it reflects kind of, you know, the, the overarching theme, which is that she is not existing as she once was. She is in flux. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. But without further ado, I'll give a quick little recap. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, is that linguist asked to communicate with aliens who've arrived on Earth via egg-shaped vessels. As she embarks on this task, her work is interrupted by scenes that appear to be flashbacks, showing Adams raising a daughter, Hannah, and ultimately watching her die. In the third act of the film, though, Louise finally cracks the alien language communicated with inky circular symbols, and in doing so is able to think like the aliens, who are not bound by the linearity of time. Did I write that? I must have copied and pasted that from something. Like the aliens, she sees her past, future, and present together. So, I don't know if that makes a ton of sense for people who haven't seen the movie, but let's break it down. The aliens, why did they come here? Well, what they reveal, because they go up several times, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're trying to get information and try to teach them you know, our language and learn from them, they said that they actually need our help 3,000 years from now. I realize that there is a definitive, definitive answer, so I'm not trying to quiz you. Oh, on I know, but I remember... The but that's good, that's good. <laughs> Did I pass, you passed, though? You passed. Okay, okay, then I'm good. But it is interesting, because it's like... That's how when you also realize, well, how do they know 3,000 years from now? Like, that's a good realization in the yeah. in the film. You're like, oh, wow. And the, in 3,000 years, they need our help. Yes. So they're giving us this gift. It's the, the movie. To, it, it's basically an hour and a half explanation for how one perceives time in a non-linear fashion. How a third dimensional human being like us would be able to perceive time in a fourth or fifth dimensional plane. And it's not the first time I've seen this. I don't know if it's the first time you've seen this, but the reason when I first saw this movie in theaters, I uh, I had no idea. I remembered not watching the trailers. I didn't want anything spoiled. So I went in there with nothing. Um, and yeah, that opening, it, it starts with footage of her baby and it's her like raising her baby and playing with her baby and then her daughter getting old and like yelling at her and saying I hate you getting cancer I guess or some horrible disease and dying from it and then she starts her day and it's set up in like I don't know what there's a filmmaking term for it where it's uh I think it's like a French phrase or something but where uh scenes in order tell the audience that, well, obviously these are chronological. Obviously, if this was shown first, then this happens later. And it's kind of reinforced by Amy Adams being kind of like lethargic and being like, 
she's suffered the loss of a child and not like um like uh in labor or something she looked like how old do you think her daughter got before she she passed maybe 13 maybe like, or may, maybe not even i was the, i don't think 18 so yeah right. it's definitely like maybe very early yeah really early and and i mean so we're spoiling everything in this movie we're just gonna go for it she knew that her daughter was going to die from this moment i mean from when she unlocks what the language gives to her but that's 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 it is that this opening scene that's the twist if if you're going to say that it's a twist i guess it's a twist um is that that opening scene is not a flashback it's a flash forward it's foreshadowing um which is freaking genius Mm -hmm. just like uh i like have you ever seen memento no. Uh, it's a movie with Guy Pierce direct. Uh, I forgot who directed it, but it's a movie with Guy Pierce and Joe Pantoliano where uh, the entire movie is in reverse chronological order. You oh. see the last scene. You see our main character getting killed by somebody. The bullet like coming out of his body, and then uh, him walking to that place where he's going to die. Cut. He's hanging out with like it's it's every shot is you know forward 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 backwards oh, until you wow. get to the beginning and you realize who these people are, um, and so I remember watching that movie and it kind of unlocking my brain for what narrative can be, um, and so that's why I feel like I was somewhat prepared for this movie in mm-hmm. that like. Movies are always built on the backs of giants, and uh, so in that way, I felt prepared, but in no way was I expecting that. I didn't expect that. Um, So the movie opens with this amazing score, and amazing, I was like, uh, oh, this music, I wrote it in big capital letters, I was like, music! Um, And then I was really sad to find out that it was not written by Johan Johannesson, the director from this. And in fact, this song that opens is called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. I was interested to find out that this song has been in like 11 other movies, like really popular movies, but I didn't recognize it. I thought it was like, oh, it's the Arrival song. Hmm. Um, But the issue is that because this song features so prominently in the opening and ending credits... The composer is ineligible to win uh, best original score because <gasps> the the issue is that people would be influenced by those amazing opening scores that he did not write. Doesn't oh, that suck? That does suck because still, there's a lot more in the movie than just the there's opening and the credits. There's amazing, like when they <laughs> and first. That's, I think that's the hardest job <laughs> uh, uh, writing I, music. I don't remember who I was talking to, but yeah, the the idea that. Um, I was talking to them and they were like, what? They have to write all of the music in a movie? And I was like, yeah. Unless it's, you know, like Blink-182 playing in a band something. Every single piece of music has to be written from scratch to match the footage. Wow. Like the the emotions and stuff. So I feel terrible for this guy. Because like that one piece where they're doing the big like 360 helicopter shot and it's like that. <laughs> oh, it, it's brilliant. Super it really cool. brings you into the moment. And I feel like it harkens back to an age that I'm not that familiar with. This like sci-fi where it was more about just like the 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 slow building tension of like where are we? What are we doing here? Like like alien, like where it just uh it's not about ooh, we're being hunted. It's just about like what where am I? What is happening? Um Yeah, so uh the the way that we find out the aliens is this that's the other thing that's so great about this movie is we 
people already know that the aliens are here. We see that there's newscasts and stuff, and there's like jets flying over her uh, uh, school, wherever she works or whatever. But we don't see them. Like they hide it by showing the people's perspective of the news right. and them going like this. Right. Um, and then Forrest Whitaker shows up, and you listen to them, and like that, like this, just this slow build until we finally see the the craft, and it just floating there. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. It's so unlike anything I've ever seen in a horror uh, <laughs> in a sci-fi movie before i'm going on autopilot here yeah, yeah. um because it's like it, it has this element of like ominous like it looks like it could hurt us but at the same time it's it's like an ovum in like the egg so so it's also like kind of welcoming and like safe it's so perplexing it's wonderful sorry mm-hmm. i'm kind of just like pontificating on my yeah. feelings what do you think of that uh, of the design of the ship before we get into like the the actual aliens. Yeah, that is such a great uh, point about how the egg shape makes you almost like comforted. But um, I loved it. I loved how it was floating. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it just fits so well into the scene. It just looks so real. Like that could totally happen to us. That's what I love most about movies that just feel like this literally could happen, and everything felt so real with all of that. But I thought the design was beautiful. It was interesting how high it was, and it kind of throws you off because as they're going up inside it you know the gravity kind of shifts and yes and then we we only see a piece of the alien but then later you can see how like how high it really yeah. is in there oh but i love that, that twist was, too oh, where oh, it's I like know. we've only been looking at their knees oh, or whatever my gosh. and it's like yeah that was um, scary for sure but i guess i think they're cute but maybe it's just see i like how they're not too scary though. yeah well <laughs> what you're referring to they float over the ground it's like uh, so so we find out that there are 12 of these ships all over the world um some of them are floating over the ocean some of them are floating over like really populated areas and this one that we see is floating in montana um and the reason it's floating is explained by production designer patrice vermette whose husband once again designed all of the uh circular art in this stating the 12 identical ships would travel across the universe and end the journey by hovering 28 feet above the ground in delicate equilibrium, leaving it to Earth's people to make the final outreach to contact them. And I thought that's so great. It makes me think of Hitch, where, you know, you move in 60% and they move in 40%. It's not a 100% kind of thing. Oh my gosh, that's the best movie for it comedies. It does not hold up. Have you watched it recently? I, Just no, like for but... in the age of Me Too, it does not hold oh, up. Oh, that might be true. It's a shame. Like, I think I saw it two years ago. Okay. I, I've seen it multiple times. It's just really funny. It's, I was watching. Uh, but that's interesting to know. Well, yeah, it's that, it's that hitch. The character doesn't redeem himself. He starts out as a womanizer and kind of well, a douche. that's actually true. Yes. And then he never gets better. It's just this woman starts to like him more. Yeah. And Kevin James. I always forget Kevin James is in it. Because he's supposed to. Like, the trailers are always like, oh, it's Hitch. And he's going to help Kevin James. Kevin James is only in, like, the first act. And then it's the Hitch movie. It's definitely a small portion. Like, I think at the end you see the resolution. But, oh. but right. He's not the huge. He's not the main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The main character. But I think it's that relationship that makes me really like it. Oh, me Kevin too. It's James. the one that stands That's, out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know who the actress is that plays uh, his love interest. She was cool, though. Uh, yeah. yeah. I want to say Tiffany Haddish, but I don't think she was born yet. um uh let's see so where was i uh okay so yeah we'll just skip ahead forrest whitaker is the general um who introduces her to ian donnelly who's played by jeremy renner so we've got a few characters here i want to make sure i do this a lot on the podcast i want to make sure that we either say the actors names or the characters names i can't keep switching between so i'm going to try my hardest to stick to the characters names so amy adams banks uh jeremy renner ian donnelly forrest whitaker weber 
Um, and then the other guy that we meet is uh, Agent Helper. Ooh, hold for airplane. The next person we meet is uh, Agent Halpern, who, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's Bradley Whitford. I love Bradley Whitford. But it wasn't. It was Michael Stuhlbarg, who I don't recognize from anything. Right, but at first he does look familiar. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's it's because the way they introduce the character. He's in shadow, and he's facing away from the camera, and he just kind of reacts to something in, like, a snide. He's He, he fills the trope of, you know, like, the, the agent who's not going to listen to and is always going to push for combat. Um, and that's basically what he does. Right, exactly. Um, so Ian Donnelly and uh, Luis Banks are the two scientists. Ian Donnelly is a mathematician, uh, I guess, and uh, Ian, uh, Luis Banks is the uh, linguist. But she's the one that seems to do all of the work. There are so many other, like, there's the uh, room full of translators that are talking to other world leaders and talking about what they've exchanged. And that's kind of a theme of the movie is the world working together versus being uh, separated and withholding information from each other. And um, only when they work together yes. can it really yeah. be resolved. Which makes me I think like that. it is really cool. Um, so, like, the... Uh, I feel like we should just skip right to, so they get to, <laughs> I, I was going to talk about that, uh, Gan, 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 Gavisti, the, uh, uh, Saudi Arabian word for war and its translation. Oh. And remember, and, uh, he shows up and, uh, he says, uh, a, a, an argument. What do you say? And she goes, a desire for more cows. It's like, that doesn't prove anything that she's better, whatever. Um, I guess I did talk about it. <laughs> so, um, and I already talked about that big empty hole. So uh, the first time that we see the aliens uh, is this, uh, you mentioned it earlier, it's this great opportunity of show, don't tell, where they come up a cherry picker to throw a glow stick, which gravity shifts and falls. And I remember that freaking blowing my mind in the theater i thought that was so cool i've never seen anything like that it's a practical I, I don't know how practical it is it's probably you know a little bit of visual effects but it looks so good mm -hmm. um and like when ian jumps from it and like has to land and you look down and it's the ground it's super trippy yeah. um and so this is where we get our first look. They come into the room, and it's a big, giant pane of glass. And they call them the heptopods. They come forward. And yeah, uh, I don't... You can probably Google it, but they're like these hands, you could say? Like, how would you describe them, the the aliens that you first see? Well, they have tentacles. Yeah. And then each they're one... They're like squid-like. Yeah, but each one opens up into more of... It's like yeah. five or six Which little is cool. tentacles, too. And so they, like, why. scored out ink Right. I was... That, it's very yeah. squid-like, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the ink, and then that kind of forms into whatever word they were thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of a bait-and-switch, though, because like we introduced the aliens and Forrest Whitaker... Uh, <laughs> Weber. Weber, thank you. Uh, and Weber says, okay, Luis, you can start now. <gasps> cut. And they cut back to the base, and it's like, oh, darn, I really wanted to see what she was going to do. Um, but that's where we kind of start this, like... Um, they spend the first hour of the movie talking to them about names and like walking and trying to learn what they are. And the big moment is where Luis goes to the glass and puts her hand on, takes off her hazmat suit and everyone's freaking out. Mm -hmm. And she puts her hand on the glass and then the alien puts its hand on the glass, this big, gross, pulsating tentacle thing. And that um, looked real. It too. looks so cool. <laughs> uh, and it's like, it, it looks 
once again, it looks so like peaceful and benign, yet it could be super threatening at any moment. Like a whale is what I thought is like how I've heard it described scuba diving next to whales is like they are super passive and they are super benevolent. And they can kill you on accident. Like, like it's like they're literally on another plane of, of thinking, just like these ones are kind of. Um, and so from that moment, she teaches them their, uh, she teaches the aliens her name and Ian Donnelly's name. And then the aliens squirt out what they decide is, oh, that must be their names. And this bothers me so much because they, because Luis goes, that must be their names. And then Ian goes, what should we call them? And she goes, I'm not sure. And he goes, I was thinking Abbott and Costello. And she's like, I like it. Why wouldn't she try harder to learn what their real names are instead of immediately naming them something based on a miscommunication? That's true. And then later, once they have their dictionary of all the different words, maybe by then they should have been able to figure it out for real, too. It seems racist. That's a really good point. <laughs> like when you show, when you're uh, an explorer and you meet some Aborigines and, I, and they go, what is your name? And they go, um, you know, click clock. And you go, I'm going to call you Mambo. <laughs> it's like... But maybe that's more of the point because it is about coming together. And I think it is fighting racism a little or that's maybe one of the points that filmmakers could have wanted. That's a good point. So maybe they left that in there on purpose. And we are absolutely appropriating their language through this education. We are appropriating their language to use for ourselves. So, yeah, maybe there is a, a larger uh, a commentary here about um, cultures meeting and because that was the thing that I've always thought was fascinating in college is like when an ethnocentric uh, scientist goes to investigate, um, you know, like a play, uh, uh, like a pygmy village or something, how difficult it is not to apply what you know and what you assume to be normal to their culture right. and just turn them into the other in your study. Um, and so it stands to reason that she wouldn't know that. She's a linguist. She's not an archaeologist or an anthropologist. Mm. Um, so That's just the only way she knows to think about it. Is, like, well, yeah, it's language. I'll give them a word. <laughs> and in fact, that's the best uh, explanation that we get after the weird kangaroo story, uh, which I thought was so convincing, and it's fake. And then she's like, it's not true. It's not true, but it proves my point. I was like, but... You just convinced the general based on this lie? I know. That was interesting. Yeah. I was, I was sad that, that she's like, oh, it's not true. Because I thought that was so fascinating. There's that. Um, there's another moment later where uh, in a, you know, flashback, quote unquote, her daughter asks her for a term. And uh, she's like, um, oh, what, 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 what do you call it when two people have an argument and they, they both get something? And she's like, uh, compromise. No, something more science or uh, no, something else. Win-win. No, more science-y. And she's like, I don't know. Go ask your dad. Um, <laughs> right. And I remember sitting there being like, what is it? What's the word she's thinking of? It's like so good. And when we finally get it, uh, it's um, non-zero sum game. I was like, I never would have got that. And as a kid? As a kid, like, what is she doing? Where, where, where the Hobart goes, what, what is this term? Like, yeah, yeah. But it did work for the film. Oh. It definitely, it's, you don't think about the logic as much, I think, in that moment. I think it really worked well. Oh, it's a great way. It hammers home the that not only is she uh, out of sync with time, but she can actually influence like that. And that's kind of like what, what reveals the big, uh, like, dramatic twist at the, or uh, tension at the end. But right. getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, after she tells that kangaroo story, my favorite uh, linguist moment is when she explains, what is your purpose on Earth? Mm. Uh, Weber is like, 
these are great school words. Walk, eat, help me out here. And so Luis Banks goes over and does like the best linguist, like hard uh, uh, crash course ever. She writes on the whiteboard, what is your purpose on earth? And she explains, we need to f- find out if they even understand a question because maybe they're so instinctual they don't understand request or why. And then we need to separate the royal you from the individual you. And it's like, of course you do. Of course you have to like baby step uh, mm-hmm. this because it's not like it's not like the Farsi recordings that she did. They don't have mouths. It's completely <laughs> different. And Weber is so like... I don't think he's stupid. I just think he's getting, you know, barked at from his superior. So he has to make sure that she knows what she's doing. But he, he wants asked, results. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he asks, like, why are you doing this? Why don't you just ask them immediately why they have uh, visited our Earth? Like, they're not going to. Yeah. Um, I love that moment because, yeah. yeah, it really hammers home like, oh, wow, a linguist is cool. I know. I think the writer did a great job with that, too. Yeah. I was like, wow, I would never have thought of that, actually. <laughs> well, it's fun to know that I realized I forgot to mention this in my uh, preamble is that this movie is based on a short story, a novella, right. um, yeah. a novella called Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. Um, and in fact, the screenwriter for this movie had been trying to pitch a version of this for years. Uh, and that's kind of it's kind of a good key into what the world of movie making is like it's not like you write a good script and if it's good it'll get picked up it doesn't matter if it's good sometimes if it's really good and the climate isn't right or the demographics aren't interested or there's another movie kind of similar then your thing could be shelved for like 10 more years yeah Uh, a quiet place the script was written in 2008 and it got made most recently now so like listeners out there and maybe you Kimberly people sitting on your uh feature films don't burn it don't throw it away you never know when the the stars will align just perfectly and you can get the next arrival made definitely it's all about patience it is it's all about patience (laughs) and just doing it like just you finish that screenplay work on it again later make a new one yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's that's something that I read is that like you can have 500 unfinished screenplays and that's great, but it's really important to have like 10 finished ones, yeah. even if they're not good. A finished screenplay can be edited, can be developed, can be improved, can be uh, workshop. An unfinished one is, oh, this is cool. I can't wait to see what you do. Right. And no one really wants to read an unfinished one. No, because they know it's unfinished. <laughs> yeah. And they know, like, so, I yeah. mean, ideally, they kind of know what you're going through if they're, yeah, if you're coming to them. Um, so they named them Abbott and Costello, even though they give us uh, their names. And this is where they just yada, yada, yada several months. Ian Donnelly uh, comes back into the narration. And it's so jarring. Uh, and it's I, I can't tell if it's breaking the fourth wall or not. Because it's not when Louise says it, because she's non-diegetic narration talking to herself. So... So who is Ian Donnelly talking to? Is he talking to her or to us? Because he's definitely phrasing it like it's someone who just walked into the room. Yeah, that that's a great question. It frustrated me. I don't I don't like that either because <laughs> I think overall they did a good job with the narration because it wasn't too much. No. It was just enough, but it's hard to do. So I agree with you. I, I don't think they should change and add another narrator. So I'm not sure what they're what they were trying to do. There. Have you seen The Big Sick? No. Or um, not the big sick. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, shoot. What was that? It was a movie about the uh, housing or about the, the uh, economic crisis. Um, man, I can't remember it. But 
it was this movie where they would just like interrupt the movie to go like, hey, are you getting this? In case you're not, here's the problem. And they would like show some cartoons and stuff like it was a documentary, but it was a movie. And I can't remember. Do you remember the name? Do you remember the movie I'm talking about? No? All right. No worries. <laughs> um, uh, it made me think of that where it's like, you're probably wondering how we got here. Um, and, did you like that? Uh, the, the, the movie when, or this? When they did that in that movie oh in that movie yeah 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 because the things that they're talking about are really lofty difficult financial topics that they literally it's it's got ryan gosling in it why can't i remember it i want to say the wolf of wall street but that's not it but it's got the same like color filter on it um it's very bright and vivid um but in this movie it's really unfortunate it's jarring it comes out of nowhere and yet the information in it is delicious i love everything that he's saying and he's talking about how like first he introduces why we call them heptapods then he talks about uh uh what we know uh what we don't know what we guessed like about the 12 sightings and whether or not sheena easton released a song a hit song and all of those Mm -hmm. um super fun it's just it it really confuses the timeline for me because there's no there's no way for us to tell how long it took for them to learn their names mm-hmm. and then there's no time for us to figure out how they learned their language we see that they were able to digitize their language into a way that they can reproduce and then the last thing he says is so louise thinks that getting to this question should take another month and i'm like so how long has it been has it been a week has it been two years right yeah so that's frustrating and i do think they skipped over it a little much i would have liked to see a little bit more of how they you know figured out that language i mean you see you're mapping it out the little pieces but it still was a little bit of a cheat i, I wanted to see that like, part yeah, yeah just a little bit they could still cheat some of it but then um, it would have been like a three-hour movie i guess yeah maybe but we're interested in that so yeah. maybe they should have cut something else but anyway because well, who knows <laughs> well because that's what happens is the focus goes away from who are these aliens and we're going to learn about mm, them is this like second or i guess you could call it like third act uh, it's a long third act um is now we're finally getting to why are they here and they unfortunately mistake the word weapon for technology and that's what blows everything up because uh china um what is his name? I, I don't. Uh, Shang, General Shang, played by Tsi Ma, who's a great actor. Oh, I've seen him in a bunch of other. In stuff. all the rush hours and everything. <laughs> is that where I recognize him? I couldn't that, remember. That's where I recognize him. <laughs> He's great. Um, Love him. So General Shang is um, the general of. he's the big he's a big general i don't know what his title is but in china where apparently they have been using mahjong to communicate with their aliens which louise at first i was like okay that's a cool unique way to communicate but louise explains that imagine if we were using chess and every conversation was a competition and a loser and a winner uh do you see how that falls apart is what she says yeah that was a cool moment i thought that's great really interesting louise is so smart and able to stand up for what like just like for for uh, female representation in film, she has so much agency. All the men around her are constantly doubting her and telling her to stop or to put your hazmat suit back on or to go to the hospital, go see the doctor again. I don't know how many times she gets that uh, booster shot from uh, the doctor. Because she broke the rule. Yeah, yeah. Frank, uh, <laughs> Dr. Kettler, played by Frank Scorpion, or Scorpion with an H, um, uh, is the doctor. But... Um, I, I, I fell off again. What was I talking about? Um, oh, how much agency so she has. Yes, that she has all of this uh, ability to defend what she's talking about to everybody. And that's so... Uh, it, it's it's what made me initially think that you were talking about Annihilation. Because the women in that movie also 
have so much going for themselves. I hate it when people say the future is female because it just feels so reductive. But at the same time, I can't wait. I want to see more stories like this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, I always feel strange saying that as a man because I feel like it comes off as disingenuous. But I hope I hope I, I sound sincere in that I really do admire the kinds of roles that uh, are being written for women today. They're not relegated to the sidekick or the damsel in distress. They are the heroes. I can't wait for Captain Marvel. I can't wait for uh, 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 Wonder Woman. Man, I, I oh, did not have a... my coffee this morning. <laughs> I, I loved the first Wonder Woman. Yeah, so did I. I, I um, there's there's a little problem I have with the fact that she needs to realize her abilities through Steve Trevor's sacrifice, but that's not the movie we're talking about today. <laughs> it was right. really frustrating to me. Um, yeah. Uh, so one really cool moment that I want to make sure that we don't skip is her dreams. So Mm. they have this canary that they keep bringing into the, uh, like sessions, which is like an homage to, uh, uh, miners when they would have a canary to check for, uh, carbon monoxide. Um, but at one point she's talking to Ian Donnelly in her bedroom and the chirping from the room comes back. And it's like this eerie, she's trying to convince him and this third person who's in the room that she's talking to that she's fit for the job. And then we finally cut to who she's talking to. And it's like Costello and or Abbott in the room. And I thought, I remember being in the theater and thinking like, wow, that was such a cool like jump scare. But it was really fun watching this movie again, knowing what the thing is, because that's her like, like, coming to terms with being in multiple times at once. Um, yeah, like that's such a lofty, weird thing. And the, 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 the phrase that she uses there is the Sapir Wharf hypothesis, which is that when you learn a language, there's a moment where you start to dream in that new language that you're learning. If you move to Italy and immerse yourself in Italian, that at some point you would start dreaming in Italian, and that's where it's like, okay, I'm I'm immersed now, and that's the Sapir Wharf hypothesis. I love stuff like that. I mm-hmm. love uh, little like technical things in screenplays or in books and stuff that key me into like, wow, they really did their research. Like when um, uh, General Weber comes in and mentions that she still has two years in her SSBI uh, clearance. I was like, what? I Googled that and I learned that, um, yeah, if you are brought on uh, to like, like, like she was to translate uh, terrorist videos for the army intelligence, then you need to go through this extensive interview process where the, oh, you both already know about this? Well, yeah, because he has been talking to someone with DOD, like, at his work, because they want to bring him on to the high secret clearance at, um, with NASA, basically. That's what I've heard, that so, they have to interview, I've heard about it from him. <laughs> they interview you, they interview your family, they interview everyone you've worked with, like, in the last few years, they interview, like, like people that uh like restaurants that you frequent and things they interview everyone and then they'll go through your entire computer history and they'll like take all your hard drives and stuff just to make absolutely sure that for your entire life starting from birth and ending at death you will not be a liability which is insane yeah that's it's a lot definitely yeah so it was really (laughs) cool to learn that through this i mean i learned it because i had to do a little extra research but it's still cool to to get that kind of key into things like ssbi and the sapir wharf hypothesis but they threw a lot of reality in there and it's little nuggets and if you want to look into it you can but if not it still made sense i thought the writer did a great job with all the little details and i think that's what sold it so well i think that's the heart of science fiction is making sure that there's plenty of real science in there to build your fiction around because obviously the aliens are fiction but we need like the 
um, uh, the, the tense and the protocol and seeing the chain of command and all of these, like the moments you get where you see the soldiers barracks or like where they're talking on the phones to their wives and stuff is so much like grounded coloring. I love it. Yeah. Yes. That was awesome. Um, so I guess we'll just, what I like about this movie for the sake of recapping it, um, is that it just kind of barrels right to the end once they establish that the aliens are here to use weapon. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and so obviously when they say we're here to use weapon, everyone goes nuts. All of the, uh, nations go blackout and they stop working with each other. And it's like, this is the all is lost moment where right. we're not working with each other. We're not sharing information. The aliens have, uh, uh so before, I feel like I, I skipped that moment. So the soldiers, there's a handful of soldiers, um, played by, uh, Mark O'Brien plays Captain Marks and he's got, you know, his cohorts. He's been watching like Alex Jones YouTube videos and uh, talking to his wife who's afraid. He They set him up in a way that's, I don't feel like he's a crackpot. I don't feel like, like, oh, he's so evil. Why is he doing that? They set him up as like, he truly believes that the military is taking too many risks allowing this to happen and that I and the people who follow me have to do something about this take this into our own hands and how they do that is they decide to blow up the ship well they think by laying some bombs right and it's i i, I believe them i'm with them and i i find it hard to to like because they even try to they don't want to hurt anybody and i feel like that's right. the biggest thing is when they put the bomb in the ship, Ian and Louise try to run back because they want to try to do another emergency session. Little do they know, the bomb has already been set to go off. The soldiers are trying to tell them, oh, no, 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 you don't want to go up there. Uh, it's too dangerous. Uh, and then one of them says, just let them go. So the uh, security gets alerted because uh, they're not responding to stuff. Uh, security comes down and... One of the lines, it's kind of a throwaway line, I had to turn on the subtitles, is just shoot over their heads, let's avoid casualties. Because these are their friends. Like, they, I, I'm not a soldier. I'm not a person of war. I, I've never done boot camp, and I don't know what that's like. But I can assume that even if you disagree with your fellow soldiers and things, it's one thing to, you know, change the operation that you're here. It's another to murder your brothers and your friends. So I thought it was really, once again realistic and grounded that they're focused they're not just crazy terrorists like oh we're gonna just shoot up the whole thing we're gonna kill weber we're gonna take this into our own hands they do one thing they get brushed away for it like as far as i know they get arrested and they're just never in the rest of the movie anymore but uh i just wanted to draw attention to how that mini conflict is once again so realistic mm -hmm. so grounded and doesn't really take away it, it 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 kind of feels like it's just a reason for them to go up, but if that's what it takes, then whatever. Because once the bomb explodes, the alien uh, ship goes like another half a mile up into the air, and so they don't know how they're going to get up there. Shang in China keeps saying that he's going to blow them up, that he gives them an ultimatum if they don't leave in 48 hours. Mm -hmm. He goes to the UN for peace talks. Those peace talks fails. Uh, they're going to launch the rockets or whatever, and Luis decides... Uh, this is my last chance. So they sent the alien like automatically sends this little elevator tube down to pick her up. She gets inside. And I remember like being so anxious oh, when the too. thing closes and it starts filling up with gas and light and stuff. And all, uh, cause, <laughs> cause I, I, I remember sitting there and like 
putting myself in her mind and going like, oh, I'm dead. I'm dying. This is me dying. I'm about to die. Oh, I, I better get ready. <laughs> just, just like that. Just like acceptance. But then, like, this is the big moment is somehow she's on the other side of the glass now. And mm-hmm. she's in the, like, floaty, cloudy, like, plane that they exist in. And it's this cool visual effect with her hair. It kind of makes me think of Aquaman mm-hmm. um, with, like, it looks like she's underwater and it kind of moves around and stuff. Um, and this is where we get it. This is where we get that first big, the only big look at what the, the heptapods really are. Right. The whole time we've been seeing what we thought was their head. Turns out it's like their knees. They pull They're up. They're so much higher. <laughs> They're so big. And um, what I read was that uh, they wanted them to kind of elicit Grim Reaper uh, feelings. And it's like, okay, I totally get that. Where it's this humanoid head and it kind of like looks like a cloak kind of. But... It is scary. It is scary. Like like before when you when you could mistake the ship for being kind of welcoming and things. This is just scary. Like it gives me chills talking about it right now. I drew a little picture on my thing here, uh, just to to remind myself of yeah, it's those like that humanoid shape, and it makes me wonder if they aren't like super advanced humans, kind of like Interstellar, where where they did that, um, and that was in fact in the original story, uh, the short story, but they, they kind of avoided that because it was so much like Interstellar, which came out, I think, a uh, couple months after this or before this. Um, so whether or not they're uh, humanoid, they explained that the bomb killed uh, Abbott. Yeah, killed Abbott, and Costello's the only one there. And Costello explains um, that in 3,000 years, we will need humanity's help. So we came to Earth to give you... Not a weapon, but our language. Our language is a weapon. Because when you think and when you learn, just like uh, when you learn Italian and you start dreaming in their language, when you start learning the alien language, you start to think like them, which is what they kind of... Like, it's sewn throughout the movie explaining this, but this is it, that they are circles. Their language is circles. A circle has no beginning or end. In fact... If you were to write the thing that they say is if you were to write a sentence from beginning to end from both sides, you would have to know where it ends, how much space you would need, and essentially everything. So these aliens know because they're there experiencing 3,000 years in the future. It's it's starting to break my brain. So mm-hmm. the way that I think about it is, um, are you familiar with the comic book Watchmen? Not a lot. But have you seen the movie? No, okay. I haven't. That's okay. The movie sucked. Um, and they're making an HBO TV show now. Um, but that's not uh, a retelling of the source material. It's a continuation. But um, one of the... So the story of Watchmen is it takes place in an alternate 1985 where uh, there are vigilantes. Super, They're not superheroes. They're all like Batman, essentially. But there is one actual superhero, like a god, uh, Dr. Manhattan. And his thing is that when, when he you know became Dr. Manhattan... He's experiencing time as all happening at the same time. And the way that they demonstrate that in the comics is one panel, Dr. Manhattan says, it is 1966. I am sitting with my uh, soon-to-be wife, and we are drinking at a carnival. It is 1977, and Judy is leaving. She's throwing her uh, earrings on the ground. It's 1954. I'm watching, like... Every time that we see this flashback and stuff, it would take some doing for me to go, no, 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 she's not in her office anymore thinking about this. She's there. She's there. Now she's here. 
Now she's there. Now she's here. Um, and it starts to really solidify as the movie gets closer and closer to the end with the conversations with her daughter. Um, the big wham line, though, for us to realize what is happening here is, I don't understand, who is this child? Freaking blew my mind in the theaters. Oh, wow. Because the whole time you're sitting there assuming she knows what's going on here and that she lost this baby. And, that is crazy. And it's, who is this child? And then uh, uh, Costello says, Louise sees future. And that's the big twist. And then, like, it, it, it kind of slides some more puzzle pieces in is that Ian Donnelly is the father. Um, and that... Which you kind of saw coming. Yeah. But I, I still, they're flirting. You yeah. still liked it. <laughs> oh, they, they're so great together because it, it never comes off as, like... Uh, I don't know, weird. It, it feels very genuine that they're the two, only two people here that aren't military and don't have all the answers, so they kind of need to, to keep each other's backs. Um, but there's plenty of like, uh, oh, believe me, you don't have to understand uh, communication to still be single. There's all this like nerd flirting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But they don't overdo it. No. So Once it's again, like it makes sense real. that they're together, but if they didn't, it would be fine too. Yeah, like, yeah I liked it. It's just so tragic that the the real like, the really sad thing in the movie is never actually shown, which is amazing, is that mm -hmm. at some point after Ian and uh, Luis had a baby, Hannah, Luis told Ian that she knows Hannah's going to die. And he couldn't handle that. Right. He couldn't look at his daughter the same way anymore because he doesn't think like she does. You can't just tell somebody that without her like perspective knowing of like the memories and and everything all he sees is third dimension and knowing it might be better after like it, there's an end to the suffering too she yeah. could probably see that too yeah so that is that oh is god i didn't even think about that too that while she's going through like chemo and all of that pain ugh it's actually way worse in the original book in the original oh. book she doesn't die from cancer she dies from a rock climbing accident at 25 so in the hmm. book, Luis knows that her daughter is going to die from something easily avoidable and doesn't intervene to let time take its course, which is so much more like cosmically yeah. strong. But yeah. oh, my God. That is that is even more interesting. Because cancer, I guess, you can't it, stop. Right. Yeah. I think I like the way they did it for the movie. I prefer though. it, too. Yeah. Well, and I really like that moment, too, because it makes me think, you know, a, do I want to know the future? And if I could, and I see something, you know, really tragic, would I try to avoid it? Would I change? They talk a little bit about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. It's like, would I try to change it? I think that's like the last line is, uh, she asks, if you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change anything? And Ian says, I guess I would say what I feel more. And I thought, God, that's so simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how you could only be happier with that kind of change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the last, uh, before we get to the, the end here and we talk about some of the themes is, mm -hmm. uh, Shang is about to destroy the, uh, aliens and he's going to launch nukes, I guess. But the problem is that like five other nations are going to follow suit and it'll probably result in nuclear destruction. Uh, Louise figures out that, so she has another like future vision thing where she's at a gala and it's so cool. There's so many clues and stuff. It's 18 months after they didn't blow up the aliens and there's a flag in the background with one of their, uh, what do you call them? The like, not lithograph. Uh, not symbol. Yeah, yeah, symbol. Yeah, one of the alien symbols on a flag. And uh, that's when Shane comes over and says, 
I'm so happy that you called my private number and said that thing. And she goes, I don't know your private number. And he takes out his phone and goes, now you do. Just one sec. <laughs> okay, sorry. I thought it wasn't recording. <laughs> I was really scared. That would be scary. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, so she, he says, I don't pretend to understand how your mind works, but I assume you needed to see that. And so it's like, no, not everybody is seeing time like she does yet, but they're starting to. They're starting to at least understand the possibility of, of not time travel, but like, I don't know what to call it. It's fascinating. Yeah, it uh, does break your mind a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it does. I'm just trying to explain it, I thought it would be easier than this. Um, so what she does is she steals a satellite phone. She now has the general's private number. She calls it, hides inside a room. Ian Donnelly tries to protect her. It's a lot of like fake uh, like uh, urgency, considering that there's time travel involved. But what are you going to do? It's a movie. Um, <laughs> she says something in Mandarin, which apparently was absolute gobbledygook. Amy Adams uh, was supposed to say something in Mandarin, but from what I've read, all Mandarin speakers says she just botched it, and it's unintelligible. Um, but the line isn't subtitled, which kind of speaks to the overarching, you know, like language theme of this movie. Do you know? Do you want to know what she said? Yeah. Well, it's the dying. It was the dying what, words. Yeah, that's yeah, right. What, what was it? So the words that she says to <laughs> Shang to make him call off the bombs immediately and start sharing information is Shang's wife's dying words, and they are: "In war, there are no winners, only widows." Hmm. And I thought Shang is the general for China. Probably one of the, I mean, I don't mean to be offensive here, but the Chinese don't treat their fellow man really that well. And I would have to imagine that he is responsible for a lot of blood. And his wife said, in war, there are no winners, only widows, as she died. Mm -hmm. And he continued to be a general for many years. Right. <laughs> and it took this moment for her to remind him, like, that's right. And it kind of harkens back to the first lines of uh, her book. Uh, I forgot. Oh, man, I had it written down here, but I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here. Talk a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did think it was interesting how basically her saying that to him, I think, also made him realize that the aliens weren't necessarily here to harm us either because they had given her that gift of being able to see the future. And somehow, I was trying to think about this. It's not that she was in the room when... You know, his wife was dying, but somehow it's like a circle where she knew the words to tell him to make oh, him realize he that. whispers to her. Right. Yeah, he goes, what did I tell you? And he leans in and whispers that Mandarin phrase. But it's still like a circle, though, because yes. it's like she wasn't in the room ever. So how did she even it's, see? It's a paradox. It's interesting. Yeah. But, but I did think it, it worked for the movie. And then he just I think that's just when he realizes, oh, well, OK, the aliens maybe aren't as bad as mm -hmm. they think i mean they don't say all that but i think it the well, you get the gist of it that's it it's like, oh, okay. it's show don't tell right. the movie which is, i love it he's a great writer the screenwriter it really is amazing because yeah we don't get a like conversation of shane going oh my gosh my wife said this to me you're right i need to change forever <laughs> it just is she says it she goes i'm done it's done and then the news it's so cool the way the news comes in you see news broadcasters saying shane is about to i'm sorry 
we're just getting breaking news. It's so cool how that it's like cool. it's instant. It's instant that he that he was like, okay, no, tell we're, we're calling off the bombs, and people were like, what? He's calling off the bombs, and it just spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. Super cool because uh, it's it's this message of peace. Um, I found the quote from the beginning of the preface to Luis's first Luis's first book on linguistics. Uh, Ian Donnelly reads it before introducing himself. Language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds a people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. So. Ties oh, it all back I had together. forgotten that actually. Yeah. Like that's really cool. And then they, of course, the aliens called it a weapon. Yes, but really, it was their language. It's language. Language is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. Yeah, wow. I think it's funny because Luis immediately kind of like uh, undercuts herself because he says that great thing, which ties the whole theme together. And then she responds by saying, "Yeah, you gotta uh, dazzle them with the basics, something for the back of the book." <laughs> I was like, "That's amazing, making me feel stupid for liking it." <laughs> Uh, so the very last thing that happens is uh, Louise realizes that Ian is going to be her husband, that they are going to have a baby. She sees the rest of her life played out. She speaks their language and she exists throughout her life all at the same time. And that's why she's completely at peace. I knocked over my water ball. That's why she's completely at peace, being able to uh, know that Ian is going to leave and know that her daughter is going to die. And I guess know whatever happens after that. I guess she has a pretty great life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and that's the movie Arrival. But that is that is insane to me. Just thinking about that, like that, knowing all that, she still chose to go through it. I mean, I think ultimately, I probably would make the right choice. But there would be a part of me that would be like, no, I'm going to try to change it. I mean, yeah. we're going to try to save my child. Some people, I guess, wouldn't have the child. It just brings back so much. Th- this is what I liked about the movie is that it made me think so much constantly. You know, like days later, I'm like, hmm, so what would I do really? It's always interesting. Yeah. And so I really admire her character because even just the thought of, you know, her husband leaving because of it all. I mean, I think that's really sad. Yeah. I don't know. I just like, No, no. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the first thing I usually do after a recap is I ask, what happens next? Right. But we know, which is kind of fun. We know (laughs) kind of what happens next. The world works together. They immediately share all information. And hopefully in 3,000 years, we reach a point where we're able to help them. Yeah. And that is what happens. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I thought about, this is just a side note, but, you know, if everyone does learn the language, because it kind of shows her teaching it, right? Yeah. In one of her classes. But then does that mean so many people are going to be able to have the same gift? That's the question that I have. Because I think that would kind of destroy society. I know. If multiple people were existing in their own effectable timelines yeah how how could you hold on to reality mm-hmm. like that's what the aliens are their entire species is able to exist in all time at once so <laughs> it's hurting my brain again mm-hmm. what does a person do what, what like okay so yeah we see that you're right she's teaching she writes a book that's the universal language and she's teaching it uh to a bunch of like it looks like other professors and stuff they're not kids they're all mm. like other scientists and professors and things so, yeah, assuming a, a, even one of those people was uh, intelligent enough to learn the language and irresponsible enough to want to change their past and or future, right. what repercussions is that? That's a butterfly effect, like massacre. Mm-hmm. Not to mention if they can see, you know, future wars, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, there's just so much to it. I yeah, mean, you could bet on Super Bowl stuff, like... Right, like back, back to the future. Today. Exactly. I mean, we've learned from them that this is not always a good thing to be able to know your future. But it can't be sustainable when that many people are doing it when they have access to it. 
I think they probably just should have left it as she was an expert or maybe one other person. Well, like the implication is that we all just became peaceful and we didn't have any reason to fight or argue or be racist or have class issues or anything like that. Is that because of this experience with the aliens and stuff, we eschewed all our problems and just worked together. I think overall that theme does work for the movie. But yeah, we're just picking apart the yeah. certain issues. But <laughs> but in it, you're like, oh, yeah, we should all come together. Like it It's does, believable. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I think you're right. You know, if too many people know the future, and even she was a little disoriented, like, what's going on? Is This is the future? Like, yeah. like dreams and flashbacks. Like, what if she was driving? She yeah. could hit somebody. <laughs> it's like, what if everyone's going through that? That's just so disorienting. So, yeah, yeah I agree with you. I thought about that. I thought, like, <laughs> Hannah, growing up with her mom, must have thought she was such a space case or whatever. She was, like, um, you know, cooking dinner with her mom, and then her mom just goes, it just kind of like phases out for a little bit and then goes, oh, oh, what? What were you saying? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I thought maybe that's why her husband left. <laughs> Whoa. All right, I'm out of here. But you know, one thing I really did think about and I liked is, you know how in the beginning she's talking to her mom and she's like, oh, yeah. you know how I am. or and she's Do just, I sound nervous? It's like she's all by herself. Like she seems really sad. And you think it's because of the child, but that was before. Yeah. So she's just really kind of a down, sad person. Yeah. But I just, I like to hope, I guess, that, um, you know, the only reason she went through all that, even losing her husband, losing her daughter, is that she could see the future with something better too. Or at least something that's more positive. Okay. Later. That's, I feel like that's the only way I would accept something horrible is that okay <laughs> at least i see past that and i'm like i get through it and it's better that's kind of what we cope that's coping that's real yeah. life coping is is being in the dregs of uh, like the all is lost moment of our own lives yeah and knowing that there is a climax with some conflict resolution ideally happening and some even falling action we, yeah even if we can't see it yeah we def- that's yeah that's no that's something abraham thing. lincoln wrote abraham lincoln uh was had had depression, was famous for having depression at the time, in fact, and wrote uh, a letter to his brother where he explained that uh, no matter how bad it gets, the thing that keeps me going is that uh, it always passes, that it when it seems the worst ever, it always goes away, either, you know, from me or just because it happens or I go to sleep, whatever, it passes. And uh, yeah, I, I think that took us off track a little bit, but I like that. So the first theme um, that I want to specifically talk about with you, I'm excited to, is free will versus predestination, Mm. is that Louise sees her whole life and still has the option of free will, but doesn't express it? I don't know. What do you think? Is the, uh, how, how, how do these two, upon hearing, upon learning the language, you gain the ability to perceive time simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So you still have your free will, but to what extent, really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. That is so interesting. It's a rhetorical. <laughs> yeah, I so know. It's like... It's, there's no real answer. But it, but it is really interesting to me, too, just thinking about it. And I think that, you know, in life as well, like, you do have the free will. But I think some things are just meant to happen. Like, even how you can see things falling into place, even if you're not planning them, things like that. Like, just meeting someone that changes your whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, something small happens, changes your whole life. I think things like that will always happen, even if you can see the future. 
And um, so with the predestination, it's like these things are meant to happen. So I think a lot of time things will work out the same way. It's like, I'm trying to think if there was an exact movie, but you know how you can like go, people like might want to go back in time to change something like even the time machine, which yeah. I love every time travel movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like wants to save his fiance. And he ends up watching her die a thousand times. Exactly. So I do think of it a little bit like that, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just brilliant. Just bringing up, all, they brought up so many themes. That's what was great yeah. about it. So yeah. Now, the other one is, uh, palindromes and time and relativity. Her daughter's name is Hannah. And the idea of something being the same backwards and forwards is what's brought up a lot. It makes it seem like, she influences the future. Like she's able to remember a thing from uh, like the zero, no zero sum game and say it, but we never really get uh, a sense that she changes her own past really. Um, like nothing. She goes into the past and makes herself know a phrase to, to be able to tell Weber or whatever. Um, but the nonlinear narrative of the movie reflects the nonlinear time of the aliens and their language. The flashback isn't a flashback. The uh, interspersed flashbacks aren't that. They're all flash forwards. Um, and so in linear time, the film's final scene uh, is actually Louise leaving the hospital, uh, walking down that hallway where everything's dark, where Hannah died. And then the next shot is the actual first scene chronologically of her starting her day and going to class, which is crazy. I would love to see a re-edit of this with all of the flashback scenes just kind of put at the end and like and see how that uh, works out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also that theme of unity working together um, and that the aliens are one of 12 and they give us one of 12 like pieces of their language and uh the idea is that if we combine and share all of our pieces that's how we really unlock the the power of their weapon of language um so i I like that right because if we were you know if there are wars being threatened just in our life like trying to think about that if we all came together then we wouldn't have world war three which i hope we don't have it just made me think (laughs) that's so of all the science fiction things that feels like the biggest fiction and that depresses me so much because the truth is it will have to take an external enemy like you can use that you can define enemy however you want but it has to be something negative to unify us against a common enemy maybe i'm being pessimistic but that's kind Mm. of how it how the movie made me feel is like yeah, they turned out to be benevolent, but benevolence isn't enough to, to, to shake the people that need to be shaken. Like, No, that's such a good point, because even with all the division we have just in our in America, not even thinking yeah. of all the countries, right? Like what you're saying, if we have more of a common enemy, like, I don't want us to all go to war. But, but that's what that brought us, us together. Right? Remember, uh, remember, remember World, World War II? Wasn't that fun? Oh, yeah. Working <laughs> no, in the factory? But yeah. that's what they did. <laughs> FDR made all of our yeah. companies and factories focused toward the war effort. And it and it changed our economy, mm. basically to a point that it was sustainable up until a couple years ago. Um, but is that what it takes? <laughs> right. That is sad. That is sad. That, to think that about. we uh, we can't just unify. We can't have one Earth leader. That's something that she bemoans at one point. Is like, uh, uh, what better way to make us work together is if they only give us one twelfth of a thing. Um, and that's the nature of it. I guess I could put another uh, under like a sub theme is sharing is caring. Yeah, <laughs> Cause, definitely. Because <laughs> without that, we would literally kill ourselves. Uh, is what this movie is saying. That should be on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of why are they here, it should be welcome. <laughs> sharing is caring. 
But it is it is hopeful. It's like not that I want an alien invasion, but maybe that would bring us all together. Yeah, I don't know. Were there any themes that uh, you brought up that I didn't mention there? Oh, I guess language um, is a theme that I don't right? think I brought up. Is like uh, what is language? Yeah. And- that yeah. it is a weapon. It's a mm-hmm. weapon of communication. It's a weapon of peace. Um, and uh, it it is like, I think it's in the Art of War, Sun Tzu, the, the idea that uh, once communication breaks down is when war is like a must. Like as long as communication exists, then there's the possibility of peace. But without communication, there is no peace. It's something like that I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, is reflected in this movie and that the only way we can receive their gift is by attempting to learn through peaceful ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Throughout mm -hmm. a game. So I love this movie for that. I know. I love it for having such a powerful message, for having such a strong female protagonist, for giving her lots of opportunities to defend herself in a realistic and impressive way that also educates us. Um, And uh, yeah. So without further ado, let's, rate the movie here on the gory days we like to rate the movie on a scale of one to five thumbs one being the worst and five being the best based on anything under the sun kimberly what do you think of arrival i would do four. Oh, four out of five awesome why yeah go, go well i love like i said it really made me think and i think that's one of the best types of movies but i also really enjoyed it i thought it had the perfect amount of tension throughout it was a little slow like in the beginning but I, it still kept my interest though and i think especially as it starts connecting then it makes sense and the only reason i took a little bit away is just those couple of um like issues. I mean, yes, it's hard to like kind of wrap your brain around all the like logically, but just some of the story holes that I felt. Um, that's just the only reason. And like, oh, and one thing I think we were talking about before is how you know were their eyes like you know you could just see the knees down. Like, were their eyes down there? Because yeah. how could they see? Um, or they just know it was going to happen. I don't know. Things like little things like that. But I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was well written, well done, well directed. So very interested in seeing more from the director, definitely. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for Dune, definitely. So how about you? Oh, well. Uh, so I love the music and sound design. And I, I feel like I kind of, it's hard to talk about sound design, but just like that moment where they first peer into the like tunnel or whatever up above and the sound, yeah, like I have, uh, I don't have surround sound here, but I have a like a sound bar. So I made sure to turn it on surround sound mode so I could get like the full effect of that. Um, and that's one of the first things that is so quickly forgotten about and written off when watching a movie is the music and the sound. Because if they're doing their job perfectly, you don't notice or really care. It just uh, enhances the the footage and the effect. So mm-hmm. um, the fact that I'm able to still remember the music and take away from that is not uh, a detriment that I noticed it. It's just so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also going to give this movie four thumbs. Oh, and I forgot. We usually assign our four thumbs to characters in the movie. So who would you give your four thumbs to? So just to one character? You can, give, you you can split them up. You can give all four to one four-thumbed monster. <laughs> I would do three to um, Louise. I was about to say Amy, but oh, <laughs> Louise Banks. <laughs> and then one to Weber. Oh, I thought Ghost Ian, Dog himself. I thought Ian was good, but it, he didn't stand out. It was a smaller It's a shame. Part. He doesn't have a lot to do. He, yeah, exactly. Right. Amy's the smart one. Yeah, yeah. Or excuse me. Louise is the smart <laughs> one. She does all the work. Um, I think him being there just helped serve her story and her character, which was still okay. Yeah. But then I thought Weber did a good job. Like you were saying, he just had a lot of pressure, but that felt realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just more of a, let's get this done. He's just not thinking about all the intricacies of it. So Where was he from? 
that accent. I think it keeps it just, coming like was it Boston, just like the in actor and out. kind of going for it. I don't know. <laughs> no I do idea. like Forrest Whitaker. Oh, I love him too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, oh, and he was in Rogue One. Right. Uh, okay, so yeah, I'm also going to give it four thumbs. Um, I love the actor. I love uh, Amy Adams in this role. She is so good. Mm. Uh, I, I want to keep seeing her in more things. Um, I, I like Jeremy Renner. He doesn't have that a lot to do, but something about him. He, he's a star, and I just love like I love seeing him on screen. He's really good. Um, the design of the aliens is the best thing in this movie like like the the, the script is uh the, the the script the alien language <laughs> script is cool the oh, design yeah. of the ship is cool the the uh everything is great but the design of the aliens themselves is so amazing i don't know how many people it took to get this like design right i wonder what different like iterations it went to but i love it the like familiarity of the squid legs but the horror of the the grim reaper body and everything so great four thumbs and I'm going to give my four thumbs. I'm going to give one to eight-year-old Hannah, played by Abigail Panowski. I'm going to give one to 12-year-old Hannah, played by Julia Scarlett. I'm going to give one to six-year-old Hannah, played by Jaden Malone, or Jaden Maloney. And I'm going to give that last one to uh, not Bradley Whitford, but Michael Stuhlbarg as Agent Halpern, because I think he's going to need it the most in this new world where time doesn't sit right. <laughs> so that's Arrival from 2016 here on The Gory Days. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Aw, thanks for having me here, Ab- Kyle. Absolutely. So where can people find you online if they're interested in looking for your work or uh, social media or anything? Yeah, I mostly use Facebook. Okay. I'm a little old school. But uh, you could just find me, Kimberly Jade Solomon, spelled a little interestingly, the Solomon. <laughs> we'll be it's, sure to spell that in the description, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, so that's the best way. Um, IMDB Pro, or because I think you have to have the Pro account, but my email is on the Pro account. Okay. Um, so definitely always open to hearing from anyone you're welcome you can share my email if anyone asks awesome you. fantastic um yeah and always. i'd love to have you back on for those projects that you were mentioning coming down the pike in the future maybe yeah definitely that oh did you hear that great. she said definitely now i've got her all right next time on the gory days kimberly J- oh it's all right hey thanks for coming i had a great time stay scary out there the gory days. i can't drive behind logs